You're listening to A Shot in the Arm, a podcast brought to you by Newsdoc Media and Hunavat Global. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast where we explore and demystify global health and human rights, from Chardin to Shanghai, Ringwood to Rio de Janeiro, and everywhere in between. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Like us and subscribe to us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and if you like us, give us five stars. Today's topic, it's all about the money. How much does it cost to end global infectious disease? How long will we have to pay? How much is actually being spent now and who's paying? Above all, does it make any difference at all? And today on A Shot in the Arm podcast, I'm talking with Chris Collins, who is the president and CEO of Friends of the Global Fight. It's based in Washington, D.C., and it leads U.S. advocacy for the Global Fund with Congress, with the private sector, and with the taxpaying and voting public. I've had the privilege to work with Chris over many years, and I'm working with him now to build private sector support for the Global Fund and build awareness here in California with communities and elected officials. Gosh, Chris, we've known each other since the 2000s, when we both worked at UNAIDS together. Chris is an incredible, thoughtful, decisive leader. Chris, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first, tell us a bit about yourself. How on earth did you get into advocacy for global health? Well, for, for as it is with a lot of people, it's deeply personal. Um, when I was uh, about 19 years old and in the process of coming out of the closet, I had about uh, four months of the excitement of that. And then we learned that there was a disease hitting gay people like myself that no one understood but we knew a lot of people were getting sick and dying. It was a very scary time um, to be melding the fear of this emerging epidemic with my own acceptance of my sexuality was difficult. And uh, it really mobilized me into action. Once I kind of got over my fear, I realized I needed to, to do something about it. I actually found myself after college in film school and uh, made a documentary on a person living with AIDS. Um, and, you know, through that experience, I learned that I'm not a very good filmmaker. Um, <laughs> the, the film turned out to be not very well done and badly lit. But I, I also learned from it that I got really um, impassioned by the issues that I needed to research in order to to work with the person that the film was about. So I learned about Medicaid policy at that time and what was available through the city of Los Angeles and what mostly what wasn't available. And also what he was going through personally in terms of stigma and losing friends who didn't want to talk to him anymore. And that experience of working with him, and he unfortunately then uh, passed away about six months later. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say he was able to see the film after it was completed. Um, but really mobilized me in terms of the whole rest of my career. In the beginning, for me, it was, uh, it was about what everyone was talking about, uh, the need to invest in research, the need to invest in services so everybody could get access to services. Um, but you know, I also realized eventually that a lot of people were doing really wonderful activism in those areas. And I met a guy named Mike Shriver, who was at Mobilization Against AIDS at that time. 
And I, I just went to Mike and I said, I'm here. I'm ready to <laughs> volunteer and do policy and advocacy work. Give me an assignment. Um, and he was on a, uh, a board that was looking at uh, issues around HIV vaccine research. And he said, well, uh, why, don't you, why don't you handle this for me? So I dove in and, you know, wound up meeting people like David Gold and Bill Snow. And together we realized there needed to be more vac- more advocacy around HIV vaccines. So we founded a group called AVAC, which is still around. And it just grew from there. I, I began as the rest of the world was realizing this was a global issue and that the equity issue was absolutely global. Um, it, it moved me towards being active on a global level as well. Uh, that was my original motivation in going to UNAIDS, actually, in the beginning, and um, all the things that that came since. And now, you know, uh, it's been great to be working on behalf of the Global Fund, but really the whole global health account in terms of U.S. investment, um, because it's it's about taking that passion around equity issues in HIV um, and applying it also to to malaria and TB very different diseases and very different issues in terms of financing and politics. Um, but still, it's, it's been great to kind of take some of the things I've learned from HIV and, and apply them more broadly. So, Chris, if you can, tell us what the Global Fund actually is. Well, the Global Fund is a financing vehicle. It's the biggest funder of global health services in the world. Um, it's the biggest funder of HIV services after PEPFAR and then the biggest global funder of both TB and malaria. And it it is really very much a financing institution. It doesn't have staff on the ground. Um, Instead, it works with partners in countries to approve uh, proposals that are designed in countries and then fund them. Um, Some things that are important to know about the Global Fund, it's very focused around results and showing that uh, funded programs are having impact. It puts a priority on things like community engagement, so uh, multiple stakeholders are involved or are supposed to be involved at the local and national level in terms of decision making. Um, and it also has a very intense um, oversight function uh, to try to weed out any cases of fraud and address them very quickly. Those attributes being you know, so focused on results um, and attending to the context in which these diseases happen are, are some of the reasons why lawmakers have been really supportive. So what do you do at Friends of the Global Fight? How do you fit in? At Friends, our job is to educate policymakers and the public and the media about the value of U.S. investment in the Global Fund. And I would say the the whole global health portfolio, because you know none of this happens in a vacuum. Um, for the Global Fund to be successful, we've got to maintain U.S. financing for the Global Fund, but we also have to have U.S. financing for uh, PEPFAR and the President's Malaria Initiative and the TB Initiative at USAID. So we try to be an advocate for all of those things and for global health overall, and really point out that um, when the United States is investing in global health, um, we're putting our best foot forward in terms of what our humanitarian goals are, but also in terms of return on investment for the United States. If you think about things like diplomatic gains and health security, um, even down the road trade relationships, there's so many reasons why we absolutely need to be investing in the global fund and, and the bilateral global health programs. And one of the big advantages of the global fund that's unique about it 
is that it's a, a leveraging vehicle because by law, the United States can't provide more than 33% of total global fund funding. So what that means is other donors, when they see what the, uh, what the U.S. pledges to the global fund, um, you know, that can help motivate other donors to do better on their pledge because they don't want to leave U.S. money on the table. So it's an obvious question, but isn't it a bit peculiar to be trying to raise money in the U.S. at this moment in history? <laughs> well, I have to say, um, since the election, it's, it has been an interesting environment, completely different than I expected. I mean, when I took this job, I started a month, two months before the election. I thought my job was going to be to get the Hillary Clinton administration to increase investment in global health. Then I woke up on November 9th and realized my job was to defend the global fund and the global health portfolio. Um, you know, thank God for Congress is all I can say. Uh, Congress has rejected the proposed steep cuts uh, in global health overall. It proposed consistently by this administration. And that's just been great to see. You know, the, the bipartisan support for the global health investment um, continues and I think is, is a, a badge of honor for a lot of members of Congress. You look at some people like Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Speaker Nancy Pelosi and uh, Appropriations Chair Lowy and uh, Senator Graham and Senator Leahy. These are people who I think, you know, this is personal for them too. And their legacy of supporting these programs is personal. So turns out they weren't about to step backwards on the U.S. investment in global health. And thank heavens for that. It's always struck me as very interesting that the U.S. global AIDS response to AIDS has been bipartisan. And I think at about the time I first met you, do you remember I was setting up the Global Business Coalition on yeah. HIV and AIDS with the late ambassador Richard Holbrook, God bless his soul, and um, my gosh, we used to have to do these awful gala fundraisers. And we did one in New York. And there was this old man in a wheelchair that got wheeled to one of the tables. And Holbrook said, you need to go and say hello. And I said, well, who is it? You don't know who that is? It's Senator Jesse Helms. And I, not <laughs> that Senator Jesse. I'm not going to say hello. He said, well, it's up to you. But it was very peculiar. Here we were. Um, a conservative Republican administration with uh, President George Bush setting up PEPFAR and setting up the Global Fund. What does bipartisan mean in this era, Chris? Well, you know, it's interesting because since the, um, the last presidential election, you know, as I said, we were all shocked and also realized here at Friends that we, were reading to, we really needed to change our game in all aspects. We needed a new communications approach and we needed a new political strategy. Um, we tested a lot of messages and we work with a lot of messages and that includes return on investment for the United States and things that um, you know uh, uh, we felt that the administration might respond to. At the end of the day on Capitol Hill, saving life is still the most, most salient issue. <laughs> I mean, that, is, that continues to be what we lead with. It's on the front page of our uh, leading brochure that we leave behind. It's about how many lives are being saved by these investments. I think everyone can relate to that. So, Chris, who are your biggest supporters in Congress? Well, I think one of the greatest AIDS activists in the world is Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she uh, identified HIV as her central issue the day that she was sworn in on the floor of the House. And she's remained absolutely supportive of the Global Fund, but the global health investment overall, as well as um, research around HIV and other issues at NIH. She's been crucial. 
Um, certainly, uh, Chairwoman Nita Lowy um, has been a stalwart in support of global health for a long time. Congresswoman Barbara Lee remains uh, just a leading light in terms of the global AIDS response and global health. She is um, someone who is there, feels like 24-7, standing up for the investment, um, but also for all the things connected to good global health, like human rights-oriented provision and watching out for key populations. Barbara Lee is, is absolutely indispensable in all of this. But I also have to say, you know, Senator Graham, who chairs the uh, Senate subcommittee that funds the Global Fund and Global Health, um, he has consistently fought for uh, increased funding in these accounts. And also Senator Leahy, who's the ranking member. And, you know, uh, Hal Rogers, uh, Congressman Hal Rogers, he was chair of this subcommittee that funds this uh, for a couple years. And he maintained... Uh, the global health funding as well. So I think those are some people who are in really powerful positions in appropriations are some of our best advocates, which is a great great situation to be in, uh, and it's bipartisan. Uh, There are other people, of course, in Congress that we really look to. Sherry Brown, for example, Mm -hmm. is is someone who cares deeply about global and domestic tuberculosis. Uh, Senator Bozeman, is someone who cares a whole lot about responding to malaria. So I think um, there are a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill, and and, uh, we depend on that. Is it easier to sell to Congress medicines, diagnostics, vaccines and bed nets, rather than this sort of more amorphous long-term investment in the sort of seismic shifts that we need to make to society and the way we provide and serve ourselves, um, what we call the so-called structural changes? I think the only answer, only honest answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think that members of Congress, first of all, they want to hear about results. They want to know that these programs are working. They want to know about lives saved, and they want to see the trajectory of infection and mortality falling. Um, and I think it is easier to talk about the commodities that help you get there. Those don't have uh, usually don't have a political uh, charge to them. So you know, you talk about bed nets over kids uh, sleeping in Africa, or you talk about antiretrovirals to people living with HIV, um, or, or better diagnostic tests for for people who may have TB. Those are things that just about everyone can say that makes sense for us to be investing in. It does get dicier with some members of Congress when you get into other territory and you talk about the absolutely crucial contextual factors here, uh, discrimination, stigma, uh, lack of human rights-oriented provision. Um, so, you know, what we try to do is talk to members and staff, meet them where they are, as, as people say, and talk to them about the things that – the aspects of the global health response that are important to them. Because, I mean, you and I know this – um, providing the providing the tools are fine, but if it's not reaching the people who really need them, we're not really going to have the kind of impact we want to do. Uh, and I think your advocacy in in sort of selling that difficult message has been really really crucial. Do you have any examples where you've been able to create an aha moment in the mind of someone who might? intuitively have a more conservative or opposed view to uh, some of the key populations most affected by HIV? Well, one thing we've really tried to do in the last couple of years is, is work 
in very close partnerships with all kinds of communities. And, you know, in, in my career, I, I spent a lot of time talking about how important partnerships are with the private sector and the faith community and with others. And frankly, I just kind of failed to follow through on it. But in the environment we found ourselves in starting about two years ago, we all realized we need to do better at that. So part of making the case around investing in global health, but also investing in health that reaches everyone without discrimination and addresses key populations has has been to bring in those other voices. And so I think maybe the most important thing we do is we work closely with the faith community and bring faith leaders from members' districts to talk to them about why this matters to them. Um, we work with the private sector and, and you know, bring in leading companies to talk about why this is valuable to the private sector. Um, we work with infectious disease doctors um, and have them communicate directly with Congress uh, about all this. And then, you know, there is just a very strong, well-informed and brilliant advocacy community in Washington. And we try to partner very, very closely with them. So again, we don't, the honest truth is we don't talk about key populations with everyone, but we do try to find a way that they can hear this message. And the way that we found we can be most effective is by working in partnership. One of the ways and one of the things that you've done that's been really incredible to my mind um, is the way you've engaged the business sector. Um, you just had an, an initiative, a letter to Congress from a number of business leaders. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, we, we've been fortunate to, again, <laughs> a partnership. We have uh, a number of companies that are kind of part of an informal group that we update. Uh, we give them updates on uh, advocacy opportunities. And these are companies that have worked with us in the past. So we brought a whole bunch of them to Capitol Hill. We've done that a couple of times. We've had lobby days with, with the business community. Um, and so, you know, we realized early in this year, we needed to get a sign on letter from uh, leading businesses to, to the key appropriators to, you know, come from the private sector angle to reinforce the global fund, uh, and the global health message. So we, you know, we, but again, we reached out to other groups. We reached out to the private sector delegation of the global fund board. Uh, we worked with, uh, red, which is a terrific organization in the United States, which, uh, works with companies to get a, a, a piece of, uh, sales, uh, profit to go to go into the global fund. We worked with those two groups and our private sector group um, developed a letter and got 21 uh, great companies to sign on to it: Apple, Salesforce, uh, UPS, um, a whole a whole great list. And um, you know, I, I think so that that's been very effective. And also recently did another Capitol Hill visit with them. Um, people are excited. They, the folks in the private sector, whatever sector, they, they want to know how they can participate in a way that's meaningful. I think a lot of our job is to just help identify those ways that people can plug in um, uh, and, and have impact. I think the private sector remains really important. Back in the early 2000s, we realized that if we were going to get people tested and treated, we had to recognize that they needed to continue working and employers needed to provide a safe, supportive environment for them. Next week, we're going to talk to um, a South African aid act activist who actually came out through the workplace. Um, and I think what was true in 2000s is as true now in almost 2020. Um, 
The other thing that I think is very important about Friends of the Fight is that you work with all sorts of bedfellows. Um, you mentioned celebrities, you mentioned Red. Um, who else have you got um, lined up to support uh, your work with Congress and the American public? Well, um, you know, um, I don't, <laughs> until something's final, I kind of don't want to name names, but I will say we're hoping to have some communications from some very prominent global health leaders uh, coming soon. Uh, it's no secret that former Senator Bill Frist is on our board, and he's already done an op-ed for us, and uh, we hope to hear more from him. Um, you know, Ambassador Mark Geibel, who, of course, ran the PEPFAR program and then ran the Global Fund, he's also on our board and, and has been incredibly effective as someone who's just so trusted on Capitol Hill, but also someone who's speaking out um, on these issues. And we hope for some uh, celebrity endorsement down the road. We're working on that. Do you know, I have a funny story. I remember back in 2001, one of the events that uh, the Global Business Coalition did with Ambassador Richard Holbrook, um, he was meeting and plotting and putting names against tables last, last minute before this event. And uh, we relied on a, a British woman, you may know her, Susan Pearl, one of the midwives <laughs> of, of frontline AIDS, um, yeah. the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative and others. And so yeah. she stood forth and represented us in the VVVVIP reception. Um, and it was just her and what she described as an absolutely stunning African-American man dressed in white from head to toe with a white beret. Um, and she walked up to him and said, um, hello, my name's Susan Pearl. You look very entertaining. And he said, baby, I am the entertainment. <laughs> uh, turned out it was Wycliffe. <laughs> okay. And she's like, that means absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> but well, here's a question for you. Uh, what worries you most, AIDS, TB, or malaria? Oh, gosh. <laughs> they all worry me because I know that they can all resurge. Um, I will answer your question, but the first part of the first part of the answer is, um, you know, we're at risk as, at seeing infection rates go up rather than down in all three of those. We have the opportunity to get ahead of all three of those epidemics and move towards eventually ending them as epidemics um, by scaling up the things we've got now and then hopefully getting some some even better technology in the game and scaling that up fast. But will we do it? You know, um, I mean, right now we should be massively for HIV. We should be massively scaling up prep, prep access, free of charge, um, in countries that are heavily affected. We're not doing that. Um, it's just incredible how few people are getting are, are benefiting from prep, and there's a lot of reasons for it. But I mean, this is a kind of example of an opportunity right in front of us that we're not taking, and I worry that um, we won't take the opportunities we've got. What do I worry about the most? TB, because I think that's the place where we most need the technological innovation and also have just done the least in terms of getting the financing um, in line and, and reaching people in need. Um, that's where we're falling behind the most. And, and of course, it's the biggest killer now, biggest infectious disease killer. Um, but my real fear, my real fear is that uh, donors and implementing countries get bored of fighting these three diseases and backtrack. And, you know, history tells you very, very clearly uh, what happens then. I mean, you know, in the 60s, India almost had malaria in the bud, and then they took a step back and it resurged. And, you know, with 
the demographic uh, realities that we're looking at in Africa with so many young people coming of age, I mean, that's a wonderful opportunity for Africa. It's a great thing. But if we don't go to scale with the HIV prevention and treatment options that can be effective for young people, we are going to see HIV incidents go up. And it, it would be a tragic thing because it's absolutely unnecessary. The Global Fund talks about being able to end these epidemics in our lifetimes. Do we have the tools to do this? Or are we basically just putting on a band-aid while we rush to research and find new technologies to help cure these diseases? Well, I guess the first question is, how long do you think I'm going to live? I mean, because that tells me how much time I have. Um, I, I think, um, well, look, I, I think... Particularly, we've seen with HIV and malaria that where we've gone to scale with things we know that work and we've reached the people most at risk, you really see the impact. You see that you can really make rapid impact against these epidemics. There are some countries that are nearing epidemic control for HIV. There are a lot of countries that are nearing eradication of malaria. Um, it's doable, but you've got to go to scale and you've got to reach the most vulnerable people. Um, I think that there is a great, great deal that can be done with current technology. And again, um, we haven't scaled things like PrEP um, or uh, you know, adequately scaled malaria or TB interventions. So there, there's a whole world of, of uh, progress that we can make just with current technology. I do think, in the end, we need technological innovation. There's absolutely no question uh, to really bring the epidemics ultimately to an end. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think we can look towards things like a long acting, uh, HIV prevention and or treatment, uh, intervention. That would be a, a huge asset. You know, there are more effective treatment, uh, in malaria that are online. Um, certainly there's a whole lot that needs to happen with TB in terms of easier to take, uh, treatments so that it's, uh, much less laborious to, to get treated for TB and easier to get tested. There's a whole lot of room and need for technical innovation in all three of these diseases. So I think the real answer is, yes, we need new technology. We've got to keep the research investment uh, going. Um, but we've also got to go to scale with the things we have now and be ready to scale those things that are coming in the future. What can we do to support you, citizens in districts or just people on the street? What can we do to support your work? Well, the, the, the true answer, although um, people have heard it before, but it remains true, is, I mean, job number one is to be in contact with elected officials and ask them what they're doing. What have they done lately to support the global health investment? I think if you're a member of a group, too, that you can bring a group to meet with the congresswoman or congressman or the senator um, at their district office or in Washington, that's a really good thing to do. Um, to, to, to show people that you've got an organization and a whole lot of voters behind you, that you're not just one person. So I would think about working with people at your work site, people in clubs you're part of, a faith community, business, um, uh, any kind of organization. Can you get a group of folks together and really make an impression with elected officials? Um, can, you know, organizing a sign-on letter, these things, these kinds of things can really matter. And then I think, um, look at just your connections beyond your congressional district and your state. Are you part of organizations that ought to be doing something on this too? I mean, if you're part of any kind of, what, what's your business doing to be an advocate on this? What is uh, other organization, if you're part of a health organization or you're part of any kind of um, organization, what are, are they throwing their organizational weight around? 
So I think, you know, uh, taking the political power that people really do have, I think, is the first step. Um, and I think to the degree people can be uh, supportive of the Global Fund and other global health efforts and through multiple nonprofits, those, those all help get good work done. Chris, is there anything that Stupid Plumley has missed, something that you feel it's really important that we uh, include in our podcast? I think it's, I think, you know, I think one thing to say is we have an opportunity in front of us, in front of us with the presidential election coming up. That's true of every presidential election. It's an opportunity to get the candidates to start talking about issues that you care about and to get them to make commitments. I'd like to see every president, presidential candidate make a commitment around um, you know, stepping up U.S. efforts in concert with our allies to end the epidemics of AIDS, TB, and malaria. I think that would be a great positive goal for the United States. It is something that we can rally the world in doing so we can step up our effort along with others. Um, it's something that will advance our diplomatic interests and our health security interests. And it's a great way to reassert the, the potential for positive American intervention globally. I mean, this is an area of investment that Americans rightly feel proud about. And I think as we try to recapture America's positive leadership in the world, global, global health is a really great way to do that. So I think um, as you're thinking about presidential candidates and if you can, in, when you interact with them, um, talk to them about the fact that you want to know what their platform is on global health and what they're going to do to end AIDS, TB, and malaria. Um, so that's, that's one thing very practically that's coming up. Um, you know, for example, I mean, every town hall that, that happens with a presidential candidate, they ought to get a global health question. Um, I think people also should really understand that uh, we're, we're at a tipping point, I think, with, with both in the financing and with the diseases. In terms of the financing side, we're seeing donors get bored with global health and putting funds elsewhere. And what we need to do in terms of international aid all over the world is not make this a zero-sum game. Donors all over the world need to understand that we need to keep and increase the investment in global health and get the job done in terms of ending AIDS, TB, and malaria, but also um, you know, be building towards universal health coverage and, and primary health care for people. Now, that clearly has to happen with increased investment by implementing countries themselves, domestic investment. And that's something that's going to be absolutely essential to uh, public health financing. And, and I think we should incentivize that, and I think we should expect uh, countries that do have the fiscal space to be investing more in the health of their own people and using our diplomatic muscle to encourage that. But I, I do think we're at a point where we're at a very risky point where we've got some really great interventions that we know work, but we're just chronically underinvesting um, in global health. Um, and, and that needs to change. Otherwise, I really worry we, we've lost a moment, and this is the other side of this tipping point, is that you know, if we act in the next few years, we really can continue to bend those trajectories of incidence and mortality for all three diseases. We can continue to bend them down. If we don't do that, um, I'm not making this up. It's really true that all three could well resurge. Um, that's because of a whole lot of factors, including demography in Africa and you know drug resistance to um, preventives from malaria and and uh, and you know antimicrobial resistance, which TB is the biggest example of that. So um, 
there are some real looming dangers out there, which we could nip in the bud if we go to scale. Um, and, and so it's, I guess, I guess the bottom line is to understand this is a real, really important moment. We can't afford the flat funding um, anymore. We've got to step it up. So, Chris, um, if people want to help, how can they access you? What's your website and where should they go to? Yeah, check out our website. We are at theglobalfight.org. And there you'll see all our, all our materials. Uh, there's a really cool two-minute video about American investment in the Global Fund and also an interactive map which shows you where the Global Fund is active and where the U.S. bilateral programs um, are also active. Um, so, yes, our website, a good place to go. Well, Chris Collins, President and CEO of Friends of the Global Fight, Thank you very much. Thank you for being a shot in the arm. (laughs) Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for all the support and likes for our first episode, which was 21st century prevention. And one comment kept coming up. In this age of tribal populism, is it really possible even to think of the kinds of biomedical and behavioural approaches that should go into a real HIV programme? Well, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on that. I keep coming back to Congresswoman Barbara Lee challenging Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in Congress. He asserted that AIDS could be ended and with significantly reduced investment – He expressed great confidence that this could be done and he didn't offer any support to back it up. And is so often the case with this administration. It's all about winks and nods, but we know what they do. We know what their commitments are. We already know that they are committed to preventing trans people from enlisting in our armed services. We already know they're working on removing women's access to family planning. So to those that support tribal, populist, evidence-free worldviews, I'd say that your right to hold those views is not the same as the responsibility of the rest of us to use evidence, to use data at home and abroad to improve the health and wellness of everybody around us. The question is not whether to provide healthcare, but how to provide healthcare. There is no monopoly of wisdom. It could be public or private sector or a blend of those two. But ultimately, whether we disagree on how to provide healthcare We should all agree that healthcare of everybody around us is fundamental to our success and survival as a species. And our job is to make that happen. Well, that's it for today. Thanks to Chris Collins from Friends of the Global Fight. For links to more information about Friends, HIV, TB, malaria and the Global Fund, go to our website, ashotinthearmpodcast.com. Find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us five stars. Have a great week. <laughs>